As a believer, reading God's Word is a critical part of your daily spiritual journey. And because it's so important, we've created a unique new resource to help you immerse yourself in biblical truth and open your eyes to all God's Word has for you. It's a free PDF download called The Word One-to-One that takes you on a guided journey through John chapter one. With biblical text and short commentary, each page provides insights that will strengthen your faith in an easy to read guided format. There's truly no other resource like this. Download your free PDF copy today at premierinsight.org forward slash resources. That's premierinsight.org forward slash resources. I think for me, the main thing is epistemic asymmetry, by which I mean that the new atheists seem to use a criteria to critique religion that they do not apply to their own beliefs and beliefs they are. And I think that one of the key themes that I think we need to explore is why the new atheism in effect feels able to criticize others and in effect is unwilling to subject their own beliefs, their own criteria, their own standards of judgment. I think that to me is really very important. In, in discussing the the, the criticism that, that Richard Dawkins makes of the Old Testament, there, there's a list of things written in the Dawkins Solution that, that the uh, Old Testament does, including, quote, prohibiting slavery, and the bracketed is Leviticus 25. And, and it seems to me that by, by, by doing so, by including that, you seem to be recognizing that there is an importance in recognizing the moral character of the Old Testament as not being accurately described by Richard Dawkins. Hello and welcome to Unbelievable. Today, Vince Vitale hosts the first of a two-part conversation about a new book published this very week called Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Before we join Vince and his guests Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor, a reminder that if you register at thebigconversation.show, then from today you can access the first of our special AI Big Conversation episodes a whole week early, as well as being entered for a special prize book draw. More details coming up later. For now, here's Vince Vitale for today's discussion. Hello, and welcome to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking together about the topics that matter to all of us. Today, we are asking the question, has new atheism failed? And we'll be discussing a new book provocatively and counterintuitively titled Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, 12 Essays on the Pathway from New Atheism to Christianity. The book is edited by Dennis Alexander and Alistair McGrath, and each of the 12 chapters is written autobiographically by someone for whom engaging with Richard Dawkins and other new atheists was actually instrumental in their conversions to Christianity. A very warm and grateful welcome to my guests, both friends of unbelievable Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. Alistair is a former atheist who discovered Christianity while studying the natural sciences at Oxford University. He has three earned doctorates, yes, three from Oxford, and has held a number of senior appointments during his academic career, including professor of historical theology and professor of science and religion, both at Oxford. He also served as president of the Oxford Center for Christian Apologetics, and his many books have been read and translated very widely. Alex O'Connor is a YouTuber and host of the Within Reason podcast, a platform designed 
to present philosophical discussion in an accessible format. Alex has an inspiring story and was making a full-on career out of philosophy as a teenager. He then studied philosophy and theology at Oxford, uh, and in addition to his digital work, he is an international speaker and debater, having defended his convictions against a wide range of experts across multiple continents. His online video material has been viewed more than 70 million times and counting. I'm delighted to have you both on the show and looking forward to learning from you. Thank you both so much for making the time to be here. It's a pleasure. Uh, I'm also uh, excited about this book and, and to discuss it. Uh, it comes out this week, uh, excited in part because it's also the week of my anniversary. So I think it will make a perfect anniversary uh, gift for, uh, for my wife. Um, I am actually uh, you know, particularly and uh, personally interested in today's discussion. Uh, my own personal exploration of God came in the years of 1999 and 2000. Uh, and back then, at least in my experience, you know, most people were not going to talk to me about God unless I brought up the topic. Then 9-11 happened. At the same time, we had increasingly more discussion about big questions uh, on the Internet. You had the iPhone bringing these conversations into our pockets, 2007. And then sandwiched in between all of that, you have Richard Dawkins' book, uh, the God delusion. And then all of a sudden you have buses driving by in the city I was living in with, you know, big signs on the side of the buses. There's probably no God. Now stop worrying uh, and enjoy your life. So it, it was a dynamic time. Uh, things were changing. I remember living through that. Alistair, uh, you were very much at the heart of some of these uh, conversations, a key thinker engaging with some of the ideas of the new atheism uh, at the outset, uh, right from the beginning. So I thought as we started, maybe you could just give us a bit of the lay of the land. What was the new atheism? Why did it take off when it did? Well, I think it's right to say, you know, what was the new atheism? I think actually it really has faded away. But I think we, we do need to say an awful lot of people listening to this will, have, will not have heard of the new atheism, that this will be all new to them. So at the time, this was very, very exciting. And really, it looked as if a new age was about to dawn, although, in fact, that didn't really happen. But certainly what happened was that in in um at that time, there was this surge of excitement and interest because 9-11 precipitated three very significant books, Richard Dawkins' God Delusions, Sam Harris's The Head of Christian Nation, and Daniel Dennett's book, Breaking the Spell. And all of these came out actually relatively close to each other and almost created the impression of a tidal wave of new, exciting ideas for atheism. And the, the phrase, the new atheism, it was coined by a guy called Gary Wolf, who was a journalist. And he was trying to say, look, there is something new about this. It's not like the old atheism, it's different. And I think one of the things that was very different was its use of slogans. So basically, we have things like God is a delusion, um, that uh, basically, you know, you have very memorable things which are going to capture newspaper headlines, but don't actually count all that significantly as philosophical arguments. So what you need to try and understand is that it looked as if a curtain was being drawn aside on a new phase in history when atheism was going to really, um, really uh, 
take the high ground. And so we have Dawkins, we have Harris, we have uh, Dennett in 2006. Then in 2007, uh, Christopher Hitchens joins with his God is not great. So basically, these four people kind of way, by a process we don't really understand, almost became the leaders of a new movement that gathered around their books. So that's what we're talking about, really. And it's all very interesting and, and very exciting. Yeah, and we're going to be talking about the book uh, Coming to Faith Through uh, Dawkins. And, and in fact, each of you uh, have uh, kindly uh, agreed to do a second episode uh, of Unbelievable as well. So we'll have uh, time to dig in uh, further. But before getting to the book, I wanted to talk a bit about the way that the new atheism impacted each of you personally, uh, because it will have been very different. Uh, for each of you, generationally, uh, in terms of your uh, perspective, Alex, I, you know, I think you were around six when uh, the God delusion, you know, first came out. And but I wonder, uh, you know, all the philosophical difficulties of this notwithstanding, like if you sort of time warp yourself back, back to that point, your your adult self. I mean, how do you think you would have reacted to what was going on? I found myself wondering, you know, what would Alex O'Connor's role have been? You know, would he have been a fifth horseman of the apocalypse or would you have carved out a very different space, you know, in terms of your perspective? What do you think? I would like to say that it depends on how old I was. I started making YouTube videos about I want to say philosophy of religion, but in the beginning, it was more about atheism, I should say. Uh, when I was a teenager, and at that time, I was greatly influenced by, if if not so much the content of the new atheists, then certainly their style. That is uh, an attitude of, we don't have a burden of proof. There's a worldview being put forward here, and our job is to pick holes in it. I, I've since come to think that this is an easier task than presenting a worldview of one's own. That's not to say it's an illegitimate enterprise. I think it's worth doing, and I think it's... Uh, it's 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 worthwhile, but I, I suppose one of the problems that people have with new atheism, it's something that's uh, talked about in Justin Briley's forthcoming book as well, is that, uh, who I think listeners of the show will probably be familiar with, uh, is that new atheism did a, a good job in terms of its success rate of, uh, of, of tearing down and poking holes in a worldview, but didn't do much to erect anything in its place. And this has led to all kinds of... Uh, theses about rise of new religious style movements. I hear people talk about the substitution hypothesis of someone like Peter Boghossian, who thinks that the sort of woke movement is a, a sort of replacement for what used to be held by religion. Um, we, we've also sort of seemingly tumbled headfirst into a, into a crisis of meaning, um, something talked about by the likes of Jordan Peterson, people like John Viveki as well. Uh, this might have something to do with the decline of atheism. And so I've now become disillusioned with the success, so to speak, not not in terms of the the popular appeal. The success of new atheism in that regard is is undeniable, at least over the past sort of decade or two. Uh, but the success in terms of its uh, philosophical fruits, I've become a little bit more skeptical of because we're sort of left a bit groundless. But then it depends on what you think the task of new atheism was. I mean, a, a lot of the time, sure, it was phrased as, "Look, you know, we just lack a belief in God, and we're going to start sort of." tearing apart other people's worldviews. When pressed on the matter, I mean, Richard Dawkins has a chapter in his book called Why There Almost Certainly Is No God in the God Delusion. Uh, Christopher Hitchens, when pressed by William Lane Craig, uh, says that he does actually believe that there is no God. Uh, this this seems to be a sort of affirmative worldview that does, well, I, I, maybe not a worldview, but a proposition that, that needs defending. And that's what I think atheism, or new atheism, I should say, hasn't done quite as well. Um, so it's difficult to say exactly how I would have reacted to this. As you say, I was about six when the God Delusion came out. And so 
I entered an intellectual space where this was already the predominant philosophy. But my suspicion is that, I mean, we often hear that the new atheists shot to fame after 9-11 and then everybody sort of started becoming atheists because of the popularity of something like the God Delusion. I'm not sure that's true. I think it might be the case that people were becoming atheists anyway in an increasingly secularized culture and, of course, in their own personal responses to events like 9-11, which led to the success of books like The God Delusion. Far more people buy books than read them and a lot of the time they buy books that they think are interesting and what they really mean by that is books that they think uh, might be able to put things into words in a way that they couldn't. And so I think we, we might need to to have some suspicion about the claim that new atheism made atheism popular again. It might have actually been the other way around. That's really interesting, Alex. And, and as you were talking about some of the uh, critique that came with new atheism, but perhaps not as much that was constructed, it made me even think of the phrase constructive criticism. I just remember as a kid, I was, I was always a virtue. You know, you're supposed to give constructive criticism. It'd be really interesting to think through, you know, when is criticism just in its own right? Like when is just critique? a virtue and when actually should it be coupled with putting in the place of something that you're deconstructing something which is actually which is actually helpful. So I, I mean I guess a generation later, maybe just pushing it a little bit further, a generation later now, let's say, how do you see your your own intended goals uh, as different from say Richard Dawkins? Well, I I still think that it's untrue. I still think that the the claims made by uh, certainly popular monotheisms, organized religious groups, uh, I, I, I certainly still can't see any truth in them. I, I should say some truth, you know, in, in, in one sense, but I don't think these are propositionally true. And so my goal is still the same as the New Atheist Project always was in terms of trying to outline why I think that's the case, where I think religious arguments fail, and also providing evidence and arguments in favor of an atheistic worldview, which often whittle down to things like the problem of evil and divine hiddenness. There isn't a whole lot mm -hmm. more, although... There, there are some other interesting interesting areas. But I, I think that the, the main place where the New Atheists movement went wrong is in categorizing religion as bad. Um, we, we've heard somewhere in, in, in the book, Faith Through Dawkins, and it's got a lot of contributors, so I can't remember. It may have actually been Professor McGrath in the introduction, says that you sort of get 9-11 and the blame for this gets put onto like Islamic religious fundamentalism, which then sort of morphs into religious fundamentalism, which then sort of morphs into religion. And people talk about religion as bad. And if you have someone like Christopher Hitchens being asked, but what about all the good things that religion does? Or what about religious movements that aren't quite as harmful? He's got so many examples to choose from that he can just sort of flood the listener with examples of religious extremism and create this impenetrable case that, of course, religion is terrible for the world. I've said a few times now that I think saying religion is bad is like saying politics is bad. Everybody hates politics. Nobody enjoys it. It's caused so many wars. Every single war throughout human history has been caused by politics. Like, sure, this is this is true on a superficial level, but I don't think it it has the the correct nuance to discuss the truth and falsity of particular political claims. In the same way that I think a sort of general religion is bad approach doesn't correctly uh, address the the difference between you know Buddhism, Christianity, and Islam in terms of their effect on the world. So that's where I would definitely diverge with the new atheist in terms of its goals to tear down religion because it's all an oppressive scheme, you know, governed by some tyrannical dictator. I just don't see it that way anymore. That's very helpful. Uh, Alistair, maybe you could jump in at this point in terms of your own you know, personal experience of new atheism, but also you know, maybe reflecting on what Alex uh, has said, any points of resonance or contrast with what has already been well, said. Well, I think there's some points of comment, I think. Um, first of all, there's no such thing as religion. It's a social construction. So Dawkins and his 
friends have to try and tell us what they mean by religion. They're in effect using a placeholder, and I think that that needs to be critiqued. Also, as I think Alex was suggesting, Christopher Hitchens is the master of cherry picking, where in effect you only select what you want people to hear and pass over the rest. But I think for me the main thing is epistemic asymmetry, by which I mean that the new atheists seem to use a criteria to critique religion that they do not apply to their own beliefs and beliefs they are. And I think that one of the key themes that I think we need to explore is why the new atheism in effect feels able to criticize others and in effect is unwilling to subject their own beliefs, their own criteria, their own standards of judgment. I think that to me is really very important. But moving on from there, I think that uh, one of the really exciting things about the new atheism was that uh, it created a new interest in discussing religion. And certainly my own experience was, you know, I used to give talks in science and religion, and I get you know, a couple of hundred people turning up after the new atheism. You know, we were really going through the roof. And so I think it really began to... Um, in effect, get religion back into the discussion. I think for me, the downside of the new atheism, what I'm calling is faith shaming, by which, in effect, they would say, oh, you're a religious person, therefore you are an idiot, you are mad, bad, or sad. And I'm afraid that that kind of way resonated with this sort of cultural mood, which I, I found rather disturbing. And I think that one of the things we do need to work very hard at is getting faith back into the public agenda and not see it in a negative light. I think that's one of the lingering things about the new atheism, so I really do dislike. It's kind of way created the, the presuppositional attitude that if you are a religious person, then you are actually possibly a slightly eccentric and rather unpleasant person. I think we've got a lot to do to undermine that um, uh, claim. But the key thing for me is, because of this new interest in science, religion, we find an awful lot of people beginning to say, well, I'm going to look into this new atheism and begin to look at what it's saying. And that is why this book came about. Because an awful lot of people who began to look at what Dawkins in particular was saying began to have misgivings about the intellectual viability of the ideas that he was setting out. And that, to me, was really interesting. Let me try and bring the two of you into conversation uh, here. I, I think what you said to this point is, is very reasonable, lots of point of commonality there. There's also um, some divergence, even in you know some interaction I've seen online uh, with the two of you reflecting on, on the new atheism in particular. I'm, I'm thinking you know, one of the uh, contributors to coming to faith through Dawkins speaks about reading The God Delusion and, and, and being very startled. Uh, and then uh, reading, Alistair, your, your book, The Dawkins Delusion, um, uh, with Joanna, uh, and, uh, and then um, I believe the way that it was put was that put things right for me. Uh, and then I noted, Alex, that that, wasn't, that was not your experience of, of reading The Dawkins um, Delusion, and, and you had some criticism of that. Maybe you can reflect a bit about about why you were critical of uh, Alistair's response, at least in that book, to the new atheism. Yeah, I remember making a video a number of years ago now, and this would have been, uh, it's difficult to know exactly where my headspace was at. And it was so long since I read the book that I, I struggled to remember the particulars, but I remember some points jumped out at me uh, reading reading that book. Um, uh, it, it kind of, in a way, a lot of the video focused on things that weren't particularly about Richard Dawkins and the God Delusion, but that was in part my criticism. I remember uh, that the McGraths had referenced uh, a, a bit like what Professor McGrath just said when Richard Dawkins would make a claim or, or say something about the inability of 
uh, a religious worldview to justify its assumptions to say something like, look, well, there's a lot in science that requires certain assumptions as well that, that need to be justified by the same by the same merit. And I think uh, that Professor McGrath referenced something like uh, the grand unified theory and how this doesn't have any evidence or support in, in the scientific worldview, uh, but also attacking some of the moral uh, objections that Richard Dawkins had to the Bible in The God Delusion, in particular, biblical slavery. And I remember a, a passage in The Dawkins Delusion where the McGraths uh, referenced uh, Leviticus 25, prohibiting the taking of Israelite slaves and of treating them ruthlessly, when the very next verse was uh, a sort of an instruction and a, and a, and a, and a commandment about how to take slaves who are not Israelites. And that is the famous passage that your male and female slaves may come from the nations around you. From then you may uh, buy and sell slaves, but you may not treat your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. And it seemed to me, although it may be the case that uh, I, I can't remember the particular passage or particular point that was being responded to that Dawkins had made, but the the spirit, the ethos of saying, well, no, actually the Bible uh, made quite great strides towards uh considerations about the, the freeing of slaves, I, I just don't think can possibly be true, given the explicit endorsement of slavery of different kinds throughout the Bible. That was one of my biggest problems with the with the Dawkins delusion. Well, let me respond to that. I think that, um, um, you know, the Dawkins delusion is, it, it mimics the style of Richard Dawkins. It is lightweight in terms of evidence. It's lightweight in terms of argument. In effect, it's saying here is the kind of rationality we see in the God delusions. Let's mimic it and throw it back at Dawkins. So that's a very important thing to say. But you know, there are very important points being made here. I mean, for example, um, I don't know what you think about M theory, but um, for me, <laughs> I see no empirical evidence for that other than its capacity to explain. I look at empirically imp uh, equivalent theories of uh, quantum mechanics. Um, and again, there is no way you can distinguish between these evidentially. You have to, in effect, make judgments at a second level to try and do that. So I think Dawkins really may be cherry picking a bit in terms of his approach to the natural sciences. But that book really was simply saying, look, there's a lot more that needs to be said. It was written very, very quickly. It was written in a mere seven, well, in fact, it was written and published in seven months. And the idea was simply to get something out in the marketplace very quickly before the really heavyweight volumes begin to arrive. And it's simply preparing the way. It's not a final word. It's simply beginning a conversation saying it's not that simple. Uh, and that's, a, I think, an extremely important thing to say. And it needed to be said. Yeah, uh, if I may, um, I I think that there's there's truth in what you're saying, and I've made this this point myself in various podcasts I've produced with atheists who uh, I, I guess my job in that context is to challenge them when they start talking about lack of evidence and the sort of the disutility of of faith. You you can talk about their own worldview, maybe their moral worldview, their scientific worldview, but I suppose my problem is that atheism doesn't entail that you adhere to any kind of scientific worldview. I know that these often overlap and somebody in particular like Richard Dawkins might have a particular scientific worldview that has assumptions that need uh, bearing out. But for instance, in the God delusion, to my memory, I can't remember any explicit endorsement of any uh, interpretation of quantum mechanics or of M theory or of string theory or of anything of that kind. And maybe may be true that generally in scientific, scientific enterprise, we need to have this kind of investigation as well. But I don't think that undermines the criticism that Richard Dawkins is making of, of religious faith, especially because I think that faith-based thinking is something different. That is, I think that 
Professor McGrath, with your background and knowledge of and in, in science, uh, you'll you'll know better than most that so much of the the, the basics of, of science is based on things like unprovable intuitions. You know, that the very existence of an external world is something that isn't really open to empirical inquiry. But I'm not sure if you would use the word faith to describe such beliefs. You might think it's something analogous to faith, but the word faith seems to have a specifically religious connotation, which has been popularly defined as something like belief without No, I, I don't think so. I mean, if you look at Max Planck's wonderful book on science, I mean, he, he says the word faith is written over the temple of science. I mean, I think that there's a very important issue here. Also, Dawkins uses an appeal to science so much. It's extremely important for to say that science is not as simple as he makes out. It's a, it's a very important corrective, I think, to get into the public debate. Alistair, I, I was somewhat surprised when you said, you know, in the Dawkins delusion, you know, the idea was in a sense to mimic um, Dawkins in, in maybe the posture, the tone, you know, to some extent. Could, could you say a bit more about that? Because, you know, there's part of me that, you know, when I when I read some of the work from Dawkins, I thought, oh, I, I really want to respond in a way that is not similar in in the tone and and some of the people in the book coming to faith through Dawkins uh, said it was in particular the tone and the posture with which things were said that um, that they found unattractive so say a little bit more about that if you don't mind well I'd already written in effect an academic study of Richard Dawkins attitude toward science and religion called Dawkins God which came out in 2014 and the uh, sorry, 2004. And the key point is that I had already engaged Dawkins at an academic level. So the Dawkins delusion, in effect, was written for a very different purpose, for a very different audience, and in a very different way. And as I was saying, the key thing is to say it's not that simple. Um, I didn't repeat many of the arguments I used in Dawkins' God because, in effect, that was already out there in the public domain. So I think that the real challenge was to try and get a discussion going. And that, I think, is something that uh, is very, very interesting because, as you rightly say, this book, uh, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, is really not about arguments. It's about narratives. It's about people who, in effect, have read Dawkins and then responded in their own way. And I think that's why, in effect, um, other I do write a very short introduction to this book, I step back completely. Uh, Dennis and I are simply saying, here are 12 voices. We need to listen to who they are and what they are saying. Because in many ways, what they are saying is we have, in effect, um, we're telling you, um, here is what we feel like um, when we read Dawkins. Here is how we responded. Here is how we went from there. And I have to say that uh, there are many, many more people that could have been included in here. There are many particular scientists who um, did not want to be included because of their of reputational issues, and we completely respected that. But I think that the key point to, to bring out is that this, in effect, is now moving the discussion to another level. This is, in effect, about people who've read this book and responded and trying to articulate the very significant role that Dawkins' book um, played in their own journey of faith, whether it's a journey from atheism to religious faith or, in effect, a kind of consolidation of their faith commitments. So I think it's a very interesting book. And I have to say that Dennis and I were really quite surprised by some of the things that were said in this book, but we felt it was very important to get them out into the public domain and ask, what are these people saying? What are they pointing to? And how can we begin to uh, understand where this takes the discussion? Yeah, I'd be interested, Alex, from your perspective, as, as you read read the book, uh, I mean, how did you find maybe even the tone and the posture 
of the book. We'll get to the content in a bit, but I'd be interested to see hear how you found the tone and the posture of the book, maybe even related to you know that of Dawkins. Speaking here about faith through Dawkins, the yes, thank you. Yeah, um, I mean, I I found I found it interesting. Of course, it was a sort of. A, a, a very personal book in in many ways i mean people would talk about the ideas and uh and lines of argumentation that led them to think about god but ultimately it was you know testimony about conversion uh which i found interesting uh the the arguments seemed to take the back foot in many many places um i i found i i thought that you know that the there's a speculation at the very end that uh christopher hitchens would perhaps have had a deathbed conversion, which is something that I think would, uh, I, well, I can't say it'd make him roll over in his grave because we don't know what happened at the end of his life. But I think uh, if he'd have heard that beforehand, he would have rejected it profusely and found it quite a, a offensive as well. So, so there's sort of a lot of, lot of interesting tidbits in there. Um, but the, the idea that people would sort of come to the religious debate through Richard Dawkins is, is no surprise. Like we've already said, uh, this is this is something that puts religion on the map. Another thing I learned from Justin Briley is that during this atheist bus campaign, where atheists, where where buses were going around London saying there probably is no God, um, Paul Woolley, the uh, then director of the Christian think tank the- uh, Theos, actually donated money to that bus campaign because he thought that it was a good way to get people talking about God. So I, I found the tone a, a good sort of introduction to to, yeah. to this idea of how reading about a subject even from as it were the sort of wrong side can can put it on the map for you but but i can't say that i was compelled at any point to abandon my atheism sure yeah i remember resonating when i heard that as well about the bus campaign i thought this is great i saw those buses going by there's probably no god that also could imply there might be a god great let's put that conversation on the table and and talk about it much more much more publicly. We're going to take a quick break. I'm here with Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. We would love to hear from you, uh, our listeners. Don't forget, you can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk or get in touch via social media at unbelievablefe for Twitter or on Facebook at Premier Unbelievable. Still plenty to talk about. You're listening to Premier Unbelievable with me, Vince Vitale, and my guests, Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. We'll be back just before we rejoin the rest of today's podcast i've got a very special offer for you to help you have an even more meaningful spiritual experience this easter as you know nt wright is without doubt one of the greatest christian thinkers and apologists of our time and some of tom's answers to questions about jesus's death resurrection and return are some of the most poignant and thought-provoking That's why we've created a brand new downloadable devotional resource that's perfect for the Easter season featuring these questions and Tom's answers. This five-day devotional journey titled Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return is only available to friends like you as our thanks for your gift today. And remember, your support is truly critical to help keep resources and podcasts like Ask Andy Write Anything and Unbelievable going strong because this ministry is completely funded by friends like you. So please give the very best gift you can today and make sure to download your copy of Jesus' Death, Resurrection and Return devotional at premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. That's premierinsight.org forward slash unbelievable show. Thank you. The moment. 
Welcome back to part two of this discussion on Premiere Unbelievable with my guests, Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. Today, we're discussing uh, the new atheism and a new book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, which includes 12 essays by 12 authors coming from five different countries, Australia, South Africa, Egypt, uh, America, and the UK, as they describe their journeys from atheism to faith in Christ via Richard Dawkins and other uh, new atheists. You know, Alex, we, we talked in the first uh, segment uh, in part about uh, a criticism that you had made of Alistair's uh, book, The Dawkins um, Delusion, uh, one of those focusing on uh, Leviticus 25. Uh, I, I also really appreciate it as I've gotten to know your work uh, that you also challenged atheists, uh, including Richard Dawkins, pushed him quite hard, I thought, on certain points, uh, in particular when it came to um, having to do with morality. And there was one conversation that I came across. It was in uh, in your Outgrowing God interview uh, uh, with him. And, and you asked him, how do we define what's good? And he said, I think that's genuinely a difficult question. You could say suffering is good, but I just think that's a horrible thing to say. It's an aesthetic thing. I don't actually have a comeback to some sadist who says, I think suffering is wonderful. You said, you know, if that's the case, you asked him then, how are you going to communicate to the religious person that what they are doing is wrong? And Richard said, I think you can't actually say it is wrong. I want to live in a society where that sort of person doesn't have influence. And then as the conversation continued, you asked, is the fact that rape is wrong as arbitrary as the fact that we have five fingers rather uh, than six? Um, and and to my listening ear, at least there was uh, very little response, no compelling response in that interview, at least uh, from uh Richard Dawkins. And and some in the book that we're discussing, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, they have been significantly impacted in their journey by that sort of challenge to atheism, by that sort of reasoning that you are pushing uh, in the direction of Richard Dawkins in your conversation with him in that interview. I wonder if you switch the seat, you know, if, if, if you were challenging yourself in your own atheism, if you were in Richard Dawkins' seat in that interview, you know, are there things to that challenge that you feel he should have said, or that you would have said, or that you do say uh, in response to that sort of challenge? Well, it's worth bearing in mind that uh, Richard Dawkins is not a moral philosopher, and that means you know you shouldn't expect the most comprehensive answer from him on this particular point. I would say, I mean, the reason I felt it legitimate to ask him is because he wrote a chapter in Outgrowing God about the origins and development, or at least the development of morality. And so at one point when I asked him a question about how he actually grounds his philosophy, he said the phrase you're getting a bit philosophical for me. And I thought... And I, I remember that your very first question to him ever in a public forum was, I, do you consider yourself a philosopher, right? <laughs> yes, it was. Uh, and and I think, fine, you know, I, I, I understand you're a scientist, you, you don't want to talk about philosophy, but if you write a book and you include that chapter, then I think you know, it, the, the question needs to be asked. Uh, I must say that this, this critique often comes up in the context of discussing the problem of evil. Somebody might point to something like slavery in the Bible and say that they think it's an abomination. To which a Christian can quite rightly say, well, on what grounds are you saying that? Now, in, in, in my view, I more or less agree with Dawkins that it might be impossible to actually make that moral criticism. Uh, I tend towards, although I'm unsettled on this, uh, a view known as ethical emotivism. I know it's gone a little bit out of fashion, but I think it's still quite defensible in various ways. And can the, a lot of the famous objections to it can be responded to quite comprehensively. But I'm, I'm still not sure on that. 
But the point that I would make is that when this criticism is levied and somebody says, well, on what grounds are you saying that slavery is wrong, Mr. Atheist? I can say something like, well, look, I don't necessarily need to do that. Let's just consider this an interesting point of, uh, you know, of conversation for understanding a Christian's worldview. If you believe that morality is objective, if you believe that it's grounded in a God, it's the same God that presided over the laws of the Old Testament, then at the very least, what you have to do is own these commands as part of this moral worldview, something that is permissible at least at that time uh, under the sort of authority of the moral author of the universe. Now, that to me seems a difficult thing to do. And I think that's actually implied by Professor McGrath in the Dawkins delusion. Well, perhaps uh, which... I could come in then. I think I need to rebut that. Um, we need to be absolutely clear that Christians see themselves as being part of a new dispensation. The old covenant is something different. And Christians are absolutely explicit. We do not carry over the Old Testament law apart from the Ten Commandments. And therefore, in effect, uh, the, the, the Old Testament moral codes, which talk about slavery and so on, are not binding on Christians. We say no to that. We accept continuity of God from one testament to the other. But in effect, Christianity is a new covenant. In effect, it leaves behind uh, so much of the Old Testament. So I do not, I'm afraid, accept that um, you can simply say, oh, because the Old Testament says something, and so do Christians. No. Christians, in effect, have a different hermeneutical scheme for reading the Old Testament, which in effect is about saying this is the Old Covenant, and we don't think like that anymore. And I think it's something that has been neglected in these things. I think Richard Dawkins, at one point, if I recall, I do hope I am wrong, said in effect that if Christians took the Bible seriously, they'd be executing people for uh, not being a church or something like that. And it's, it's all about a misreading of the Christian understanding to the Old Testament. So I think we do need to get that on the table, that yes, there is the Old Testament, and that's very significant, but Christians do not see that as being normative. They see it as being a prior period in the history of um, God's dealings with people. And there's a new covenant that has come in now, and it's different. Was it, uh, was it morally permissible at the time, in your view? In my view, um, there may well have been morally permissible. I don't know. Uh, certainly, early Christian writers said maybe there were good reasons for this, but we are no, no longer saying this is for us. We are starting again, and we want to do it in this way. Quite right. But I mean, presumably, this, this has to be accepted as something that once was morally permissible. I understand the idea that the uh, moral prescriptions may have been for a particular time that don't apply anymore, but they did apply at the time. And it's the same God that we're talking about, right? And so like, no, I, it's, I, it's, I perfectly uh, agree with everything you're saying. The Old Testament perceives God, I think. I think there's a very interesting argument to be had here. But I'm quite keen to get back to this book, which I think has some interesting points to make. I, I did I did wonder if it might be might be possible but the only reason that I'm pressing this point is because I I, I remember I, I have the Dawkins solution here as well actually and and there's a there's a point at which when when talking about uh, Dawkins moral criticism of the Old Testament which is I think how we we got here because we're talking about in faith through Dawkins a lot of people think that the 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 lack of sort of moral import of atheism as part of their movement towards Christianity um, in, in discussing the 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 criticism that that Richard Dawkins makes of the Old Testament, there, there's a list of things written in the Dawkins Solution that that the uh, Old Testament does, including, quote, prohibiting slavery, and the bracketed is Leviticus 25. Uh, and it seems to me that by, by, by doing so, by including that, you seem to be recognizing that there is an importance in recognizing the moral character of the Old Testament as not being accurately described by Richard Dawkins. The reason I think this is relevant to the present conversation is because if it is true 
that in order to uh, accept a moral intuition that most people have, they need to adopt a worldview. And in this case, it's Christianity. Then if that comes along with having to accept the even one time moral permissibility of the kind of things that we see detailed in the Old Testament law, I think that the the, the very motivation sort of gets undermined, if you see what I'm saying. I see what you're saying, but I don't agree with you. I think that there's a hermeneutical question here about uh, the emergence of these ideas and how Christianity, in effect, picks them up and develops sometimes by fulfilling them, sometimes by saying, no, we're, we're not going there anymore. We have a different way of looking at things. And you know, one of the things that I, I appreciated about the impact of the new atheism is this sort of conversation, uh, because I felt like prior to the new atheism, often there would just be a very, very general conversation about Old Testament is bad, no, Old Testament is good. <laughs> uh, whereas I actually found it helpful. I was teaching seminarians, you know, at the time at sort of the height of, of the new atheism. And I found it helpful uh, that now people who are agnostic or who were atheists um, had some different passages, at least at their disposal, to say, hey, here's some challenges for you. And you need to work out some of the nuanced hermeneutical principles that you're talking about, Alistair. So in that sense, I think it pushed the conversation forward and challenged uh, some of those who are Christian to think more deeply about their their understanding of scripture. I had one more one more um, question in this general vicinity, Alex, and, and we'll kind of circle back to more of the, we talked about personal impact of new atheism. We want to talk a little bit more about the societal impact, and then we will get uh, more specifically to the book as well. But on, on this question of, of um, sort of the subjectivity or the objectivity uh, of morality, this is just a question that, uh, you know, was in my mind this morning, and I thought I'd just get your take on it. In terms of this whole enterprise, you know, we're, we're using our our, our reason right now because we want to come to rational conclusions and we think it's better to come to rational conclusions than irrational conclusions. I was just wondering your, your thought on that. You know, is there is there some sort of objectivity to morality that's actually necessary for the value in these types of, of conversations? Um, because we don't just want to say to someone, you know, somebody could just respond to you and say, well, that's a really rational point, but I think your rationality is better than rationality. So I'm just going to kind of go my blind faith way. Uh, is there a intersection between our valuing of the rational process uh, and potentially something objective about morality, at least to the sense that we say, hey, it's better to reason rationally than to just come to conclusions that are irrational. Uh, any quick thoughts on on that? Uh, and then we'll We'll keep moving. I, I think there may well be if uh, if somebody says that they value these things, then we we must investigate what they mean. If if they mean that there is some objective value to truth and rationality that just ought to be preferred over something like willful ignorance or something, then I think that there is some kind of uh, burden of proof that's adopted there, and they need to justify why that value is in fact valuable. But in my case, at least, when it comes to something like rationality or rational argumentation, it's not so much that I value rational argument; it's just that I am uh, non-consensually beholden to it. If I find something to be rationally true, if I listen to a syllogism that I think is uh, analytically true, I, I just become convinced of it. And so there's a sense in which rational thought dominates the way, or at least you know, I like to think that rational thought dominates the way that I think, um, but that's not because I necessarily value it. It just sort of happens to be the case. Of course, rationality could be could be totally bunk concept, you know, album planting. It could be right that we have no way of justifying this. But I'm not trying to justify it in this instance, as in this sentence here. I'm not trying to justify the value of it. I'm just saying that that's just what the human brain does. 
Although I'd love to know what, what, which Thank are the you. many rationalities available to us you adopt, because uh, as I'm sure you all know, I mean, there's the a huge variety of ways of thinking. And I mean, you're adopting what I think is one form of rationality, which you respect completely, but there are alternatives are available. And I think also, I mean, a really interesting question here is Jonathan Haidt's work, you know, on, um, you know, social intuitionism and the fact that very often we, we, we think we are making rational decisions, but actually there's a deeply emotional thing going on in the background. I think that's fascinating just to try and explain sometimes what's going on in public moral debates where actually there's a hidden agenda going on. Shang is really interesting. So let's zoom back out uh, once more. Uh, I, I wanted to talk. I, I, re I really wondered if, if I'm. I, I'm so sorry to to, to press this, but I, I just okay. I don't know if I'll get another chance to ask Professor McGrath. This is the the one thing that jumped out to me most in the Dawkins solution. It's it's just two words that jumped out to me more than anything, and I just wondered if you uh, essentially stand by them. Um, the 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 passages that uh, I'll, I'll quote it. The passages that Dawkins finds so shocking appear alongside other material in the Pentateuch, which he ignores, dealing with forgiveness and compassion the laws urging hospitality towards strangers, and then a quote, setting limits on acts of revenge, Exodus 2, prohibiting slavery, brackets, Leviticus 25, declaring a jubilee for debt, and, and so on. You say prohibiting slavery, and then bracket, Leviticus 25. But Leviticus 25 verse 44 reads, your male and female slaves may come from the nations around you. From them you may buy slaves. You may also buy some of the temporary residents living among you and members of their clans born in your country, and they will become your property. You can bequeath them to your children as inherited property, and make them slaves for life, but you must not rule over your fellow Israelites ruthlessly. Would, would you, I, I, it seemed to me that, that you were saying that Leviticus 25 prohibits slavery, though those are the words that you use when it seems to me clearly that this can't be the case. I, I wondered, that's the main thing that jumped out of me at the Dawkins solution. Well, as, I look into that. As, um, as, as, I think as the wrong. point I was making as Dawkins really is that there's a sort of ethos in the Old Testament, which is much more benevolent than he allows. I'll, I'll go and check that. That'll be a very helpful thing to do. Yeah, excellent, excellent. I'm pretty. I'm glad that we're able to interact back and forth on, on that because this is you know some of the uh, conversation that I think specifically you know needs to take place. Sometimes the tone with the new atheism, from my perspective, was I'm saying this you know so strongly that I can't be challenged on it. Um, and hopefully, one of the things we're doing on a show like this is saying, yeah, I'm, I've I've said some things that challenged some things uh, that you said, Alex, some things that you said. Um, Alistair uh, and saying we're willing to go back uh, and take a look at that and continue the conversation. So I'm, in, I'm encouraged by that. Um, as we zoom out, you know, one more time looking, we talked a bit about the personal impact of the new atheism on each of you. Uh, and that kind of did lead us into societal impact to some extent, but I don't want to brush over that. Positives and or negatives um, that you that you see. Maybe I'll Maybe I'll start with you, Alistair, um, that have come from the new atheism. You know, now this many years on, are, are there positives you see in society? Are there negatives that you see in society that uh, the new atheism contributed to? At the time when the new atheism emerged, I, I very much welcomed the new interest in discussing religion, although it was a very vague discussion with the word religion being hopelessly poorly defined. And I think that one of the things I've hugely appreciated is the rise of the scientific study of religion since then, which actually has really moved us in some very helpful directions. That has nothing to do with new atheism. That, in effect, is it's just a new development, which is very, very exciting and moving us in some very helpful ways. But there are negatives. I mean, I mean, I, I mentioned the phrase faith shaming, and I, I'm going to come back to that because, in effect, um, uh, there is there, a lot of people do feel now that they, they do not want to talk about their faith. That, uh, as Marilyn Robinson said, that in effect, a lot of people feel 
their faith has shamed them to the edges of society because of this cultural pressure that's emerged. And what I'm hoping is that this will change, that actually we'll get back to a level playing field where we can talk about these things respectfully and intelligently. And uh, we can get away from this incredibly polemical atmosphere because I think that is something that I don't welcome. I think that um, one of the things I picked up very much from reading the contributions of the um, people who wrote this book, uh, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins, is they disliked the, um, the, what they saw as the, the arrogance or the overstatement that they found in some of the writings of the New Atheists. And I think that's very important. But also, I think um, the reluctance to, to, to concede there might be anything good about religious belief. And I, I think that, you know, I'm, I'm all for um, being critical of people. I think that's very fair. But you have to be balanced. You have to say, in effect, there are some downsides, but there are also some upsides. And I think it's very important just to, to bring that out clearly. You've probably read Terry Eagleton's review of The God Delusion, in which he says that Dawkins really seems unable to, bring, to think of anything good that religion has done. I think that. There is that. We we have to say, look, let's be fair about this. And that's why I prefer other writers like Michael Shermer, who do make the point very, very clearly that although religion can be critiqued, it does do some very good things. And we need to get that into the discussion. So I'm hoping that um, we might get back to a culturally normal discussion, because that to me is very, very interesting. I look forward to that happening. Would you agree with that, Alex? I mean, in particular about maybe the negativity of, uh, of shame as a form of persuasion and, and better forms of dialogue that we can move toward? Yeah, I, I don't think shame is even an effective tactic, let alone a, a moral one, or I should say perhaps an aesthetic one in the language of <laughs> Richard Dawkins. Um, it, it seems to be an ineffective strategy, uh, in other words, uh, even if you think that it's, it's justifiably inflicted. I, I do think that in some respects, the new atheist movement at least sees itself in its polemical and abrasive style as a reaction against the polemical and abrasive style of something like American evangelical, uh, the e evangelical movement or like sort of, uh, televangelists or, uh, the, the forcefulness with which certain media personalities might want to see you know, God put back in the schools and this kind of thing. I think in many ways they're reacting to that in the, in the way that professor McGrath says that the Dawkins delusion is in some ways an attempt to mimic the style of the God delusion. It's possible that the tone of new atheism is an attempt to mimic what they see as the tone of religious fervency, especially in uh, North America, but also some would claim in some parts of uh, the UK as well. Now, whether that's accurate is, is another question, and it certainly doesn't reflect the majority of religious belief, and certainly not the majority of religious scholarship. That is, you know, the, the real philosophy and theology of the matter. But in terms of the popular discussion, I can I can totally understand why that's the tone that's taken, especially when you know. The, the best shot that a lot of these new atheists will have of getting their worldview put onto the map is a, a sort of 20-second soundbite on Sean Hannity or something. It's sort of like, well, what, what do you expect in that culture? Yeah, that's interesting, Alex, because uh, I, I can remember reading some of the new atheists and being frustrated at, at the way that um, my faith at times seemed oversimplified or caricatured. Uh, but I do also remember thinking to myself, Okay, I, I want that to drive me to to be sure not to do that when I'm talking about the belief systems of others. Yeah, um, and thinking to myself, you know what? At, at various times in history and in different cultures, this is probably the experience that atheists have uh, had. Right. Uh, you know, an ex an experience of being seen as either stupid or evil or or worse uh, because of that belief system and and having it caricatured. So. 
Yeah, there's a, there's a negativity in there which you brought out, Alistair, and, and perhaps also a positive we can take from it that, that you've brought out, Alex. Does that sound fair, Alistair? Well, I think that um, when, when um, dialogue gives way to polemics, I'm afraid that we do find very often overstatement, misrepresentation. Sometimes I'm sure these are accidental. At times I just wonder, you know, I think there's almost like a culture of focusing on um, what is wrong rather than zooming in on what actually could be a very positive conversation about what actually people have in common. And I think it's one of the things that, that the new ethnic is just so socially divisive. That is, that's the real thing I think that really disturbs me. That we are not dealing with an attempt to build a consensus. How can we live with differences? It's really a question of how do we, how do we ridicule and shame these people? I think that, that to me is, is really very, very worrying. It's the tone I think I really find difficult here. And I think if we can do anything to build a consensus and to establish a ground for a respectful conversation, then, you know, I'm, I'm, I'm in, in for that. That's great. Right. Cause when you, I mean, when you boil it all the way down in terms of the goals of the new atheism, you I mean, you might be able to put it by saying, you know, a, a hope that society would be more rational and less harmful. I mean, even right there, there's, there's some common ground, right? Across this divide, we can probably, many of us can say, yeah, those are, those are good aims. Now there's a question about whether new atheism um, or as you say, Alex, perhaps uh, some of the uh, cultural strands that new atheism was responding to or engaging with, whether they're particularly profitable in reaching those goals. Um, if not new atheism, you know, both of you have, have spoken about some of the deficiencies. You know, Alex uh, speaking about how there was more critique than, than construction there. Uh, what would that look like? What would it look like moving forward? You're both part of of helping to shape this debate and this conversation moving forward. If it's not the new atheism, what could it be moving forward that produces the sort of spaces, the sort of dialogue, which is actually helpful, which actually goes back and perhaps reaches in a better way some of those initial goals of, of new atheism, to be more rational as a society, to be less harmful as a society? In in my view, I think that uh, this is going to require... Um, Something like a, a moral humility on on both sides of of admitting what the others get right. That is, um, it, it's it's fair to say we can say yes. The new atheist movement was quite polemical. That is, uh, as opposed to being dedicated to to truth seeking. A lot of the time, it seemed to be more about point scoring. Certainly in the popular debates that occurred, and to perhaps a lesser extent in the books. Uh, but I think that the 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 things that new atheism got right needs to be uh, properly addressed as well. I think that the new atheist criti criticisms of particular aspects of organized religion uh, are still quite legitimate. The historical injustices committed in the name of religion, uh, the, the historical conflict between religion and science, I think that this question is often sidestepped a little bit in that the criticism might be that Organized religion has gotten in the way of science, and the, the the repost comes that, well, actually, there's no contradiction between being a scientist and believing in God, and and in fact, you know, much of the scientific movement is motivated by belief in God, and and, and that may be true, but it doesn't change the fact that the sort of point of historical criticism that's being made that one of the greatest impediments to scientific progress has been organized religion of one kind or another is true, and and rather than just sort of sidestepping that, I think that recognizing that that is the case, and then explaining why that doesn't bear on religious belief today or all religious belief throughout history might be uh, relevant. Personally, I think that the development of podcasts and long-form content a bit like this 
it's going to do a is going to go a long way to improving the nature of the conversation. It's not that you get to write an entire book, and then somebody who has a, a a criticism hopes that they might get a review published in a journal somewhere or something. No, you can sit down for hours on end and listen to people talk this stuff out. It's not a soundbite on television. People are thirsty for the long form content now, and I think that's because they're beginning to realize that it's the only place to get true wisdom on these matters. Yeah, that's that's encouraging uh, the long form content and approached with a certain posture as well, where we're actually listening to each other and not just trying to score points. I mean, I've often thought, even when you think about rationality, some of the most rational people um, that I know are not the most intelligent people that I know, but they are people who listen to others um, well. Actually, you spoke about that moral humility. There's actually a character element to what it means to be um, a rational person. And, and I, I was uh, moved by the end of Rafiq Samuel's uh, chapter. This is on page 187 of the book. Um, but he this is right at the end, and, and he says, I still struggle with God's hiddenness, but his interventions in my life are undeniable. I still find talking to him sometimes exhausting and strange. I think Christians should better learn to express this difficulty. However, Christ is my ultimate hope, the thing that is most worth holding on to. I recognize his fingerprints more and more in my life. I just liked the, the balanced nature of that. It seemed like there was a an honesty to the fact that there had been some real challenges, both in his personal experience and challenges that he had received from others, uh, and he wasn't going to brush past those or not recognize those, even though he was coming to you know personal conclusion as well. So I think we do need more of that. Alistair, how about for yourself as you're trying to kind of chart a course for how you might contribute in an ongoing way to this conversation in the public square? Well, I think Alex is right just to point out that religious institutions kind of way can be a real pain, but I'm afraid so can all kinds of institutions. In fact, for me, one of the things we really need to do is to figure out how to kind of keep institutions with issues of institutional reputation, authority, and so on out of these things. We can have a scholarly discussion. Uh, Alex is right to say the church in the past has been a bit naughty. Uh, not always, though. We have to give credit to you. But if you look at the the way in which the Soviet Union <laughs> tried to redirect the scientific enterprise during the 1930s, we can see there that, 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 that there's, there's problems all over the place. So let's, um, let's give credit for that. I think what I'm hopeful about is this. I, I think what I'm very hopeful is that people will go away from these kind of conversations saying it's not simple. And I think that one of the things that I, I really get annoyed about is, 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 is some of the new atheist writers have this extremely simplistic account of what religion is. And one of the most common responses of religious people on reading Richard Dawkins' critique of religion is, I just don't recognize myself. And I think, I think the problem is that in one sense, some of the new atheist writers are, are relying on cultural ignorance of religion to, in effect, be able to say, this is what Christians say. And you, you find something being said that actually isn't really representative at all. So I do hope that we may be able to uh, use this as a way of kind of way increasing a general cultural awareness of issues um, from you know various forms of religion to various forms of anti-religion and try to get a sense of what the issues really are. And for me, I think one thing we just have to do is find a way of getting away from polemics because once you start getting into an argument, you kind of begin to lose goodwill, you begin to lose the, the, the dynamics that actually can lead to a very creative discussion. I'm very happy with arguments, but I want them to be towards increased understanding. I think that's the key thing here. We live in a very fragmented society at the moment. I think we need to do all we can to try and find ways of building bridges rather than rip them down. It's not simple. Uh, I really like that. Let, let me complicate the conversation uh, in, in one way, then we'll, we'll head to one more break, and then we'll come back and talk even more specifically about the book, Coming to Faith 
through um, Dawkins, but it's not simple. Uh, even the foundation for this type of conversation, uh, for us trying to reason, to, I mean, we share this in common with the new atheists, right? We are all engaged in the project of trying to reason through our human capabilities to serious conclusions on metaphysical matters of importance. That's a s significant um, enterprise. And, you know, I was thinking about this this morning. You know, what would either of you say to uh, to someone who said the whole enterprise uh, is problematic? It's problematic because, you know, us as the finite humans that we are, if this is the circle of everything that we know, the diameter of the circle of everything that is to be known in the universe is just exorbitant. I mean, it's just our circle is, is minuscule. And then you add to that the fact that even as we see on this show so often, uh, there are people who are just as smart as us, who believe things very different from us, just as strongly as we do. And so even using our own finite human reasoning processes to try to come to conclusions on these deep metaphysical matters and then assuming that our conclusions are in some way to be preferenced over those of others who seem equally intelligent and, uh, and equally committed to their views, someone could complicate the entire discussion you know, that we're having in, in that sort of way. And, and I wondered at that most fundamental level, if either of you would be willing uh, to just speak to that and say, despite that complexity, despite that problem, here's why I think this is a worthwhile uh, uh, enterprise and one that we are capable of making progress in. Well, I'm always impressed by Edward Wilson's very famous statement in his book, Consilience, where he says, we are drowning in information yet starved of wisdom. I think that's very wise. I disagree with his uh, the general approach in that book, but every now and then they're just little nuggets of gold. And that's one of them. And I think one of the things I'm really concerned about is, is a wider question about cultural education, which is how on earth do we find some sort of shared wisdom that actually might help us as a nation, as a people, to kind of way be able to talk to each other a bit more? And I think that, that, that that's a real concern for me, that I very often feel that uh, instinct is to fight someone, whereas my instinct is to listen to them and try and work out what they say. And, and sometimes this makes it Excellent. very, very complex, because in effect, it, it means that, that you, know, you, you realize you have misunderstood, you've misrepresented, and of course, that, it's not just me. Everyone does this. I think that's why conversation is so important. I often wish or wonder, in fact, what was happening if Richard Dawkins had conversations with um, some Christian theologians before writing The God Delusion. I think there are some passages that could have been improved as a result. But anyway, I think that the key thing is to try and find a way of generating a safe space which we can have these conversations. And that's why I'm so fond of Oxford University, because it does provide these kind of safe places for these difficult conversations, and you learn through them. Well, we need to take a break there, but uh, that's what we're trying to do. Uh, find those safe spaces, find that shared wisdom. Uh, we'll get back in our third section, more specifically into the book, Coming to Faith Through Dawkins. Don't forget to let us know uh, what you think. Email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk. See you in just a moment. Welcome back to the final part of our discussion between Oxford theologian Alistair McGrath and atheist YouTuber and host of the Within Reason podcast, Alex O'Connor. You're listening to Unbelievable, the show that gets Christians and non-Christians thinking together about the topics that matter to all of us. And I'm Vince Vitale. Okay, let's talk a little more specifically about the book that we've been discussing, Coming to Faith Through 
Dawkins. Alistair, I know you are never short on things to do. Uh, tell us why you decided to take on this project in particular. Well, this project emerged because um, my colleague Dennis Alexander and I, who, who talked to each other a lot, um, noticed that um, as we were going to conferences and looking at our emails, we were getting lots of stories of people who, in effect, had either um, come to faith through reading Richard Dawkins to some extent, but Christopher Hitchens as well, um, and or they were describing some way in which their life journey had been redirected by them. We thought it was really interesting. We tried to um, find out more about this and tried to find out what was going on here. And um, the book, in effect, is not Dennis and I saying, here's what's happening. In effect, it's much more saying we want the people to tell their stories because these stories are very interesting. They're interesting at a number of levels. One is, of course, you know, the impact of the new atheism. I think that's, that's one thing that's very important. But secondly, is the way in which people begin to figure out what they think and why. And that is something which is best done as a narrative. Here's how I thought this through. Here's how I developed my thinking. And there's some very interesting, very different, I have to say, personal narratives here. But the other thing which is really interesting is that this, this book is a series of narratives about people who, in effect, um, are talking about ideas that really matter to them. In effect, they're saying, here's how I might find my way to these ideas and the difference that they made. And again, all of them, all their cases, the new atheism, particularly Richard Dawkins, is involved. Now, I want to make clear that neither Dennis Alexander nor I are in any way criticizing new atheism here. We're just saying, isn't it interesting to note how this conversation has grown out of this and how, in effect, some people have moved in very unexpected directions as a result of that. So we thought it was good to get these conversations out there so people could, in effect, hear them and decide what they made of them. In terms of what the conversations represent, you know, Alistair, uh, to what extent should we think of it as the value of the individual stories? And to what extent should we think of it as a, you know, a pattern of how people responded to Richard Dawkins and the New Atheists? You know, as a whole, you know, I, there was part of me that found myself thinking, yeah, yeah, maybe it's not overly surprising that there are some people who were actually pushed in the direction of faith, but there may also be lots of people who were pushed in in the direction of of atheism as well. Should we should we think of that as yeah, just different impacts on different people, or did you sense that actually there's something surprising about how many people were pushed in the direction of faith? Well, this book, book makes no judgment about quantities. In other words, you know, how many move that way, how many move this way. We're not interested in that. We're interested in, in effect, how very often we're coming across people who seem to see the new atheism as a precipitant, as a catalyst in, in, in a move towards faith. And we find that very interesting. Now, of course, we, I'm sure there are many others who say, here's how the new atheism catalyzed my atheism. I'm sure that'd be a very interesting book to write. But we felt it was very interesting to look at a number of case studies, 12 of them here, very, very different people, in effect saying, look, here is how my thinking changed. Because it illuminates the kind of factors that people bring into into play when they're thinking about this. Obviously, they're thinking about issues of rationality. But one of the things that comes out very clearly and very interestingly, I think, is how the tone of things affects you. That in effect, the you know that people very often find stridency off-putting, and that's a very interesting point uh, because if you look at Aristotle on rhetoric, you know he makes some very interesting points, and I think that's something we can learn from this. But the main thing I think that, that Dennis and I were hoping to do through this book is simply to say, look, um, aren't these people interesting? You know, here's what they are saying. They are they are each 
prepared to say, here is how my thinking changed, here is how my life changed. And in effect, it reminds me, I think, that very often when we look at the New Atheism, people are giving arguments. And I think that those are important, but actually narratives have a certain depth to them, certain personal depth. They then say, look, here, here is how I as a person heard this, response to this, evaluated this, here's how I moved ahead. And actually that process of thinking is fascinating, whether you agree with the person or not. So we hope this will be interesting and we'll be very glad to see what the response is. Hmm, let me pick up on a couple of those uh, points with Alex. Um, Alex, do you think that there could be a, an opposite book, uh, you know, com coming to atheism through Christian apologetics or, or something along, uh, along those lines? Could you, could you imagine the mirror image? Yeah, I'm not sure about Christian apologetics uh, because I don't think that has quite the same sort of cultural success, except perhaps in response to the new atheist movement. Like I, I, I know there are a lot of popular uh, works of Christian apologetics that are very well thought out and, and very popular. But they weren't sort of dominating the 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 news, TV channels in, in the same way that New Atheism was. So I'm not sure you'd get quite the same cultural force. But I, I certainly think I mean it's it's a, a common sort of uh, factoid, you know, that the best way to make an atheist is to make them actually read the Bible. And and this this kind of thought is is popular among a lot of atheists who say that yeah, no, the reason I'm an atheist is because I went to Catholic school and I had a terrible experience. So the reason I'm an atheist is because my parents were Christian and I thought that, you know, their, their moral code was terrible and I turned out to be gay and they chucked me out of the house or something, you know. Now, these may be sort of, uh, these kinds of responses might be um, flawed. That is, they might say, well, okay, I mean, maybe like your parents, you know, didn't have the best version of Christianity, but that doesn't mean you can undermine Christianity. To write a book like coming to atheism through my parents would be a sort of insufficient attack on Christianity. But then I think coming to faith through Dawkins is an insufficient attack on atheism. It's really just a, an attack on Dawkins' particular brand of atheism, which I think is already being uh, viewed by a bit of a, in a bit of a cultural shift as, as now not the best uh, approach to the question. I mean, even Dawkins himself has seemingly hinted in, in at least a few instances that he is pessimistic about the decline of Christianity because of the fear of what it might be replaced with. And now when he makes the news, it's never because he said something controversial about religion. It's because he said something controversial about gender or some other kind of issue that, that now is the kind of thing that when you turn on the, the, the Fox News or the Piers Morgan Uncensored, that's the kind of thing that they're debating now. Whereas, you know, 10 years ago, it might have been evolution in schools. Now it's the woke movement. That seems to be where the, the attention has turned. And so um, I think, yeah, look, uh, atheists could easily say that I became an atheist through my interaction with XYZ. Christian person, organization, or, you know, organized religious group. Uh, but I don't think that speaks to the truth of the claims that uh, are ostensibly at the basis of those religious groups. Mm. Were there uh, were there things in the book that um, challenged you or, or moved your thinking uh, in any way? Well, I, I think because a lot of the time we, we, throughout the book, we're sort of looking at overviews of arguments that I've already been familiar with. Uh, the, the, the thing that I found sort of most interesting reading through it was, as I said earlier, the sort of personal testimony and, and why it is that particular interactions with particular arguments cause people to, to come to, come to belief in, in God. Um, I, I, I wouldn't say that there was anything in there that, that challenged me on a sort of, uh, philosophical level to think, you know what, fair enough, good point. But it certainly made me understand why people might be disillusioned after reading the God delusion. I think it's a, a common story among Christians that they might read the God delusion, find it challenging, 
listened to some of the responses and realizing that it's actually not that uh, philosophically suitable a book, um, fine. I'm, I'm, you know, happy to happy to say that that happens and that that might speak to the the uh, the insufficiency of the God delusion as a philosophical challenge to theism. But that was kind of something I already agreed with anyway. Mm-hmm, mm-hmm. I remember uh, at one point you. You know, saying that if you did ever make a you know movement toward faith, it would probably be due to some sort of religious experience. It would be your sense, as opposed to uh, you know some some syllogism. Yeah, even just on found statistical at, at probability, because of course, like the the vast majority of stories that you hear, God isn't found at the bottom of a microscope. I think, perhaps, with the exception of Anthony Flew, it's the only person I can think of at the top of my head who seems to suggest that yeah, no, it was just sort of an argumentative shift all of a sudden. Uh, I imagine it would be some kind of religious experience that would that would move me in that direction, and that's what we should expect. The Bible doesn't contain syllogistic reasoning. The disciples start following Jesus not because he presents the Kalam cosmological argument, but because they see him perform a miracle. They experience something before them, uh, and so in many ways, the the question that you asked Professor McGrath before the before the break about the utility of this kind of conversation, I think, look, you know, if you want to do it, then do it, but you have to recognize that we are on the the precipice of this ever-expanding circle that will never sort of fulfill the, the the thirst for knowledge that people have. So take part in it if you like, and and fine, I'll 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 have that conversation with you. But I don't think it's uh, we we should be saying, oh, everybody must do this. Everybody has to you know challenge their intellectual beliefs and come to sort of a an analytically philosophical worldview. No, some people will say, I'm not interested in that precisely for the reasons that you've been uh, laid out. And I think that's perfectly legitimate to say no. That that's not how I want to interact uh, to interact with religion. It's an experiential relationship. Um, fine. I'm just saying that that's not something that I have any experience with. And when somebody says that they think they can get me there without the experience, or rather just through analytical reason, I say, bring it on. Just not just for the normal motivation of wanting to be proved wrong where I'm wrong, but also for the emotional motivation of wanting this to be true. Right. Right. And and, and you know, Alistair talked about significance you know from his perspective of the narratives you know in the book do you find that engaging with the religious experience of others has some sort of you know impact um you know in a rational sense even if it's not your personal experience well i, I think that religious experience is always going to be private by definition and, and this is the this is the issue i think that when somebody says that i come to religious belief because i had a religious experience this is often sort of mocked in the in the debate sphere as well. Of course, that's not going to be a sufficient argument, but that's not what it's supposed to be. I think that it may be the only legitimate way or the, or the only sort of effective way, I should say, for somebody to come to belief in God, maybe through personal religious experience. And so if somebody tells me that's what they, they have, the best I can muster is lucky you. Like, fine, fantastic. You know, I, I have no criticism to make of a, a narrative of somebody's personal experiences. Of course I don't. But if somebody were to try to turn this into some kind of argument to say that from the existence of lots of kinds of religious experience, we can deduce that it's more likely than not that there's a God or something like that. I would say it just doesn't do it for me. I need the experience itself. And in some sense, listening to the religious experience of other people strengthens my own case of divine hiddenness against the existence of God in that it's one thing to say that if God exists, why don't I get to experience him? It's another thing to say that if God exists, then why does everybody else get to experience him, but not me? That I think actually strengthens the case in a, a, an argument in an argumentative context about God's existence for the atheist. In the sense that it might strengthen the case against not necessarily against God's existence, but against God's goodness. 
uh, well, he... yes, yeah, so God's God's existence. I think if um, I, I mean many theists think that sort of goodness and God are sort of if you define it, in, inseparable in that manner. But certainly in in a discussion of divine hiddenness, the problem of divine hiddenness for God's existence, the existence of selective religious experience, I think, makes the problem worse and almost more suspicious. That is to say, uh, you know, it, it sort of some people get it, other people don't. Is that best explained by God sort of picking and choosing who to reveal Himself to? Or is it best explained by more people being receptive to uh, what are essentially, and I don't mean this in an insulting way, but illusions or delusions uh, caused by a whole manner of other potential explanations that they interpret as religious experiences? What's the best explanation for these events? Um, I don't know the answer to that, but I think I in, I'm, I'm inclined towards saying that until I experience it myself, I, I, I just can't see it as an argument. Yeah. No. That, okay. That make, that's helpful. That's helpful. And I was, I was wondering if in the other direction... You know, you could also run that argument from the other direction where you say, actually, I'm giving some credence to other people's experiences um, as opposed to putting so much on my own experience or lack of experience relative to um, the uh, experiences of, of many other people as well. Yeah, I mean, the stronger their beliefs, uh, the the harder the case. If somebody said that, yeah, you know, I, I sort of I did experience God, but it was very minor. I sort of I felt something Then I think, OK, it's possible that that is on offer to everybody and I've just missed it. That That's possible. I just haven't been receptive enough. I, I've sort of missed it when it came. But if somebody says, no, I, I had a sort of overwhelming conviction of God's love all of a sudden. I read Richard Dawkins and suddenly met, you know, Jesus, something like this. If they describe it as a more powerful, intense kind of religious experience, then I think, well, yeah. I, I'd be much less likely to miss that. So if that's what's going on here, I, I'm a bit more suspicious as to whether this is actually grounded in the existence of a God, you know? Yes. Alistair, I, I was, you know, thinking about... Um so much that we've talked about already, you know, and and for both of you, you know, the desire to carve out, you know, a space for meaningful dialogue, um, you know, on these questions. And I was thinking about, you know, the book, I think the blurb refers to it as the most interesting dinner party that you've ever gone to, you know, or it's like being at the most interesting dinner party. And I found it being at a very interesting, you know, dinner party. And I thought to myself, you know, this morning, the only thing that would, would potentially make it more interesting was um, if you had people who actually disagreed, you know, within that within the same volume. And of course you can't do everything in, uh, in one book, but it did, it did make me think whether I would, you know, um, half seriously put, put a proposal on the table, uh, you know, for the two of you, uh, what would your initial, uh, instinctual reaction be to the idea of a, a book like this? Um, but actually including people from both perspectives, uh, of a Christian perspective, but also an atheist perspective, uh, whether that's particularly engaging with new atheist literature or, or something more generally. In a sense, you know, part of what we talked about, the long form content, I mean, very much what we're doing in a show like this, but also, uh, you know, in book form, could there be space for people, you know, not just talking, you know, about each other's worldviews or at each other, but with each other in the context of, of a book? Um, Alistair, you've written so many books that you, you may already have done this, but <laughs> I wondered what that sort of proposal uh, felt like to either of you. Well, to me, I think it sounds like a good idea, but uh, what really matters is the interaction. And very often in books, it's impossible to to actually have that interaction with set pieces. I, I think one of my own interest in New Atheism really began when I, I went to a private debate at Bailey College in Oxford with myself, Richard Dawkins, Peter Atkins, and a small student audience of about 30 people. And it was really interesting. It was not recorded. It was simply... I was there. Well, in that case, uh, it was very, was very there. exciting, I thought, because it was really talking to people and listening. And um, it just occurred to me that, you know, that that's the sort of thing you want, where in effect you're able to listen, to respond. It also, I think, made very, very clear to me 
this is going to be a line of thought that's going to be culturally very, very influential. Just why I went and read up on Richard Dawkins in great detail to get a sense of where he was coming from, what he was doing. It's very, very interesting. But I think that there is a case to be made for this. And I think there's also a case for modeling what I would call as a scholarly gentility in the sense of trying to say, look, um, I'm not trying to score points. I'm trying to listen. I'm trying to respond. I'm trying to, in effect, allow those who are overhearing this conversation to, to recognize what the issues are. And, and that we have not had that conversation. I hate to be quite frank about that. I mean, I have private conversations like that. And I'm so pleased to have had them because, um, you know, you know, if you read someone like John Gray, you just have this very strong impression that that's the best conversations are actually when atheists and Christians talk to each other and realize actually they might have more in common than you think. And that, that's very, very important. But you don't uh, have to give up on your beliefs because they're very, very important. So I, I would be very interested in this, but I don't think that a book really is the right way of doing this, I'm afraid. But maybe maybe something else will come up. Yeah, excellent. Excellent. Uh, I, do, I do like that idea of continuing to be in conversation across... Uh, disagreement, yeah. Something I, you know, I'm just getting to know your work, Alex. But uh, something I've appreciated is your willingness to change your mind uh, on things. You've, yeah, you know, you've done that on on a few things and and done that publicly. Normally, if people do that, they uh, they don't do that publicly. Uh, in particular, I was thinking, you know, one thing I watched where, um, you know, you said that even if God exists, um, uh, I wouldn't. I wouldn't follow him. And then later came to realization that there might be something irrational about that. Actually, no, I think it'd be great if God exists. I'd, I'd love to escape death. I'd, you know, uh, relish being a recipient of unconditional love, you know, but you, you said very straightforwardly that you had changed your mind on, on that. And I appreciated that. And I don't want to belabor this point, but I did want to call attention to it because I think it's incredibly significant to the types of conversation that I, I long for us to have. And, and I think that both of you do as well, but um, you know when you moved away from veganism um, as well, and uh, and made the public uh, you know statement that that you did, uh, my wife and I independently uh, came across the statement, and we we were really moved by it. Um, it. I'll just read two sentences here. At at the very least, even if I am way off base and totally mistaken in my assessments, I do not wish to see people. Uh, consuming a diet on my account if I have been unable to keep up that diet myself. Uh, even if I am making a mistake, this is what really struck me, even if I am making a mistake, in other words, I want it to be known that I have made it. I thought that was very countercultural, very unusual, uh, but very honorable. Uh, even if I am making a mistake, in other words, I want it to be known that I have made it. Uh, you know, and then you go on to uh, apologize if you rigorously or at times perhaps too unforgivingly advocated for a certain behavior um, change. Uh, I just wanted to honor that uh, really in the context of this of this conversation. Um, you know, you you referred, you know, Alex, to that as an embarrassing and a humbling moment. Um, I my wife and I really experienced it as a courageous moment, uh, regardless of what someone thinks about the specific issue that you were talking about. Uh, but just the fact that publicly, uh, you were saying, even if I'm making a mistake, I want it to be known that I have, uh, made it. Uh, and so the willingness to engage in conversation, change your mind about things and actually then to want people to know, uh, if you've made a mistake or uh, if you think you may have made a mistake or if you've changed your mind about something, that to me is so contrary to um, some of the uh, communication that we 
found in the new atheists. And sometimes some of the communication that we find on the Christian side um, of this uh, debate as well. But it's something that I really hope for more of. I mean, I don't know if you could just reflect on that for a, a second, Alex, where, where that comes from, because that is not the manner, the posture of communication that is typical in our culture. Well, it's kind of you to say, but I, I do think it speaks more to the, the, the culture. I mean, I, I'm sometimes told, because I've been doing this since I was a teenager, uh, I, I've said things in the past that I, I, I listened to some of my old material and, and I just I just think it sort of doesn't doesn't make sense half the time. I don't know what I'm talking about and I'm doing it with this confidence that's sort of unbelievable to listen back to. I almost don't recognize myself in those videos. Uh, and, and so of course I've been doing it long enough and at a time in my life when I'm I'm changing drastically, studying at university, this kind of thing, that, that my, my views are going to change. So sometimes people do say, you know, that they're, they're grateful that I make these changes known. And I, I think to myself, that that's that's nice. It's kind of you to say, but then uh, how low is the bar here that if I say something like, you know, this thing that I used to believe, <laughs> I don't think is true anymore um, because of course I'm going to change my mind on various things. I mean, I'd be suspicious of anybody who didn't change their mind ever on anything. And, and so, you know, sometimes I change my mind and people say, oh, it's great. You know, like, it's, it's so so wonderful that you can put that out. And I think like, is that really the state we're in? That that simply letting people know isn't that the whole reason we're here? Isn't that what we're doing here? Like, if I'm not going into a conversation like this, or into a debate, or into a, a sort of online spat with the genuine conviction that I might come out the other end with the opposite worldview, or at least sort of with a thought that will lead to me adopting the opposite worldview, then what am I doing? Like, I, I'd actually consider it to be a great failure if I didn't change my mind on anything because my entire project is to. I mean, people say, you know, oh, I like to sort of engage with the other side this kind of thing what they mean is that you know they like to have them on yes. the podcast get a soundbite have the conversation you know make, make it like an interesting debate or spat and that and that's it like ostensibly what we're doing here is trying to engage and engagement over the course of a decade or so will have to result in you changing your mind at some point so i uh, i i i thank you for your words but i i, I don't think it's uh, that much of an accolade i'm, I'm afraid to say yeah, no, well said. I appreciate that, and uh, I find it uh, very refreshing. And the book that we've been talking about, uh, Coming to Faith uh, Through Dawkins, is also about the stories of 12 people who were willing um, to change their mind uh, and go on a journey to uh, do so. Uh, before we finish, Alistair, you know, as the co-editor of the book, uh, if there's anything further that you'd like to say about the book itself as people consider reading it. I think the book just tells 12 stories and uh, whether you agree with them or not, they're actually very interesting stories. The one about Egypt I found particularly interesting because it, I mean, it was something I hadn't really thought about very much. But I think it, it's just one of those things where very often you know, when someone tells their story, it kind of raises questions for you as well. So I think we offer it in the spirit to kind of say, look, uh, here are 12 very interesting stories, see what you make of them. And we hope that uh, that whether you agree with them or not, you'll find them interesting. And uh, I'm sure there are many other stories that could be told, but we only had space for 12. Well, we have to leave it there for now. Uh, thank you very much to my fantastic guests, Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. Uh, we hope you enjoyed the discussion. As always, let us know what you think. Richard Dawkins, if you're listening, we'd love to uh, hear what you think of the book. Uh, part two of this discussion will be on the way uh, soon. But for now, consider getting yourself a copy of Coming to Faith through Dawkins, or maybe buy two copies and gift one to someone who disagrees with you about God. It's not simple. Uh, so keep the conversation going, and I'll see you next time. 
ChatGPT just was released without really any thought about the ethics of making that available to anybody who has an internet connection. We are allowing large companies and governments mm. to learn so much about us. Recent work on humanoid robots is incredibly realistic. And when you can predict what somebody does, you can control them. They're on our phones, they're in our schools, they're in our hospitals. When I asked GPT-4 to do the same again, but with fewer errors in dates and places, what it did was really revealing. Could AI ever replace humanity? In the first of a special two-part big conversation on the subject of the robot race, Christian robotics expert Professor Nigel Crook and atheist computational neuroscientist Professor Anil Seth discussed the implications of the many rapid developments in artificial intelligence. This episode comes out on Unbelievable Friday the 8th of September, but if you register at thebigconversation.show, you can watch it a whole week early from the 1st of September instead, as well as unlocking access to hours of exclusive bonus video and ebook content across all five seasons of The Big Conversation. Registering will also give you the chance to win a free copy of Professor Nigel Crook's book, Rise of the Moral Machine. That's The Big conversation.show Thank you for listening. The second part of this discussion about coming to faith through Dawkins will be released in a couple of weeks' time and will be hosted by Ruth Jackson continuing to explore the big questions for atheism and faith in today's culture with Alistair McGrath and Alex O'Connor. Let us know what you thought. You can email us at unbelievable at premier.org.uk You can comment on our Facebook page, Premier Unbelievable, or tweet us at UnbelievableFE. Next week, we bring you the first of our special two-part big conversation about artificial intelligence, so be sure to tune in or to watch the video on thebigconversation.show. See you next time on Unbelievable. Unbelievable.